Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Racetrack. I am Molly Joe Rosen alongside some amazing friends on the Believe Network the number one podcast platform for professionals. This is our first show, and I'm so grateful to have y'all along for the wild ride we're going to take as we go behind the starting gate to learn about the crazy game that is horse racing. The idea behind Beyond the Racetrack came from a question I got doing a Racing 101 seminar slash virtual cocktail hour for the good folks at Remington Park, the awesome racetrack and casino in Oklahoma City. And the way that show was set up, People sent questions at ahead of time, and one stuck out in particular. Who is in the paddock before a race besides the horse, the jockey, the owner, and the trainer? That's something we in the business see every day, but never really take the time to stop and think about because, well, it's either us or our friends or the people we work with. So that single question got me thinking back to all the seminars I've done and how folks always come by at the end bringing up something they wondered about but were sure the group already knew, so they held their tongue. And you know, it's never something obvious. So I realized I should put my 18 years of working in this sport to good use. There's gotta be a reason I've gone from the backstretch at Churchill Downs to tour director at Three Chimneys Farm to talking horses at Sunland and Woodbine and Remington to buying and managing really good, and okay, some not so good racehorses, to working for account wagering companies like Bet America and TDG. Basically, the goal for this show is to have fun learning from the people who make these horses go round in circles. No matter how you found us, and I'm certainly glad you did, thank you in advance for liking and subscribing and commenting and sharing and whatever else it is you can do from whatever podcast platform you found us on. Plus, you can join the conversation and tell us what you want to know and who you want to hear from at beyondtheracetrack.com. Now, let's load into the gate and get to talking ponies. We all understand that there is more to NFL games than players just showing up to the stadium on a Sunday morning, suiting up, and rolling out onto the field. The same is true for horse racing. It takes officials on both the backstretch and front stretch to make the races hopefully giddy up without a hitch, and we're lucky to be joined by one such gentleman today. Stu Slagle has worked in just about every capacity a racing official can, and we're going to chat about some of the inner workings of the game. But first, Stu, that is one of my favorite titles racing official, because I think it just might be the vaguest title in the game. Can you tell folks what all that encompasses? Well, the main reason why I go by racing official is for tax purposes, because when you go fill out your taxes and you use a tax preparer, they have to select a, uh, a profession when they file online. And it is very hard for them to look for a placing judge or paddock judge or whatever. Racing official is something that they vaguely understand and will type in the other categories. So that's what I usually go with. But a lot of times the racing official is, um, it, it's, it's vague because depending on where you are, you could be doing more than one official role. And, uh, and you could also change roles when you go from track to track. So it's just an easy catch-all phrase. Uh, I usually work for the, uh, the association and I have been an uh, official in the capacity of entry clerk, placing judge, patrol judge, photo finish, teletimer, 
claims clerk, assistant racing secretary, racing secretary, and director of racing. Wow. So like just a few things. We all have an origin story and there's no two alike. What's yours? How did you get into the sport? I grew up in Texas uh, in a family that liked all sports. So my introduction to horse racing was um, just the family would watch the big three races every year on television. I remember watching some races along the way. I remember seeing Secretariat's Belmont. Um, that was probably the earliest um, horse race in my memory. Uh, I started uh, going to the university library and reading Andy Byers articles and the Washington Post go through and I was just trying to get nuggets from what he had. And, um, but at that point I had made several friends, got it, uh, got into the habit of go, going to the OTB. And, um, at the same time, I, you know, I was losing interest in be, becoming an academic scientist because, uh, while I was at the university of Illinois, I was a graduate student in uh, biophysics, uh, working at the national center for supercomputing applications and, I didn't want to be a professor and I just sort of dragged it out for a while, wasted uh, time in school and money uh, until I decided to do something else. One of the things I love about how we all learn different parts of this game is how many avenues there are. And correct me if I'm wrong, very early on, you put your literal money where your mouth is and got into the ownership side? Uh, the, the ownership uh, group was a virtual owners partnership. and. Uh, Leanne Davis was our trainer. Uh, Cal Justice, uh, coworker from Motorola, a gentleman who helped me uh, recommend me for the job at Motorola. I uh, worked at Arlington Heights, uh, which was, you know, that was, you know, move up from downstate Illinois to be near the track. That was a good thing and had friends in the partnership. Um, I wanted to put the horse in spots where I thought we could win and, and uh, I second guessed the trainer a few times and and decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there. Um, or everybody realized after I got out that the horse was turf horse and she, she relished uh, the surface change and I wasn't patient enough to find that out. Um, I probably broke even in the partnership. Uh, I don't, I don't know what everybody else did when they were all said and done. I'd say several of them are still owners now and the rest are still fans and I'm the only racing official out of the bunch. No, it was one of those things where I just slowly was picking up more and more of the game while I was there. Um, and then I don't remember the exact details of why, but Arlington, they were going to skip a season. Uh, and I, at that point, I'd already left Motorola, started to work for uh, an IT consulting company that, uh, that placed um, Unix system administrators on, and companies for uh, short-term assignments, and I had a chance to uh, go to Southern California, and I thought, okay, Arlington's not running. Um, there's nice racing in California, and uh, they were going to put us up in uh, Marina del Rey and work in different spots, so I, why not? So I go, uh, end up working at places like um, uh, Hughes Space uh, Communications, uh, Yamaha Music uh, Corporation of America, uh, just doing consulting work there. Um, 
spare time going to races at Hollywood Park, Santa Anita, Del Mar. Uh, and then about that time, I, I met Tom Quigley, uh, who's now the VIP concierge for Santa Anita. At the time, he was the uh, owner and publisher of Horse Player Magazine. I met him in the paddock at uh, Del Mar. My forms marked up with uh, numbers he'd never seen before. Uh, at this point, I was buying data from Briss, uh, CSV files, running my own my own uh, statistics, uh, loading them in Access, and just trying to do multivariable statistics. I was uh, combining, you know, things that wasn't in the bottom of the form yet. Now you, it's it's easy to see uh, debut. Uh, um, debut routes or anything like that. At the time, at the time, it wasn't published, so I, I had everything marked up in the form, just trying to find something different. This had to be around '99. By, by January, he had the idea that they wanted to create a, a website for for the magazine. That's one type of thing I hadn't done in, in, in computers yet, so I figured, you know, why not? I volunteered to to help. And at this point, I've switched over to. Uh, another dot-com company, uh, you know, I just, so I don't, now I'm onto my third dot-com. Yeah, but at that point I you know, already, you know, taken in the, the, the California circuit. Uh, I was learning more of the races as a, at the time. I, I got tired of being on call 24 by seven, driving to downtown LA to data center to fix a computer at two in the morning. And, and I thought I should become a jocks agent. That was probably the dumbest decision of my life because at the time I didn't understand the role. I mean, we all make mistakes when we do things in racing. And even though I was a good handicapper, even though I knew horsemen and I knew all that, that job is really relationship management and sales. And as an introverted computer guy, those were not my strong suits. So I convinced a couple of guys to leave Northern California and go to Sunland Park because I knew I wasn't ready to start at uh, in Southern California. First jock who showed up left a day later and the second one when he realized the first jock left figured there must be some kind of warning flag and he didn't he didn't even get on the plane he didn't come. So I've already quit my corporate job and have no jockeys and I'm living somewhere new. I didn't run back to take my old job. I didn't say I, you know, crazy momentary insanity. I just kept going forward. Found uh, found a jock that didn't have representation. Worked hard for him. And within a couple of weeks, picked up somebody who actually had some skills. But I didn't do I didn't do too well. Uh, I struggled, and so at that point, I moved to um, the Texas circuit. Part of it was um, mom and dad lived in Texas and uh, like it, most people in racing, you need enablers, people that are going to give you a place to live between meets. So you um, met my mom. And oh, it's, it's not just you and I, there's a lot of people that would not be able to do this job as they're learning if um, they didn't have friends or family to, to, to help them along the way. At some point I looked in the mirror and said, I am not ready to do this right now and uh, need to do something else and begged for an opportunity to to work in the racing office at Rotama. That was my first race office job. 
And from there, started out as entry clerk and placing judge. Uh, during that meet, the racing secretary from Sunland came out, recognized me, saw that I was in the office, I wasn't an agent, and recruited me to go work at Sunland Park for the winter. Uh, and one of the things that benefited my career more than anything else is being at Sunland that meet. Um, and the reason is uh, at, at that year, the 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 Jockey Club subsidiary that runs all the racetrack software, Encompass Solutions, bought out their last remaining competitor. I'm working at Sunland and they decided they're cutting Sunland over first. I was the only one at Sunland who'd use both software. And so when Encompass came out and being the former IT guy, I knew how to translate what they wanted from the software, what they wanted from the, the user interface, what, you know, how the, how the computer program worked, just the, the happenstance of being in that office that year probably helped my career more than anything else. You know, after, um, Sunland, I can't remember the order of some of these things because we move around all the time. I ended up working at Prairie Meadows halfway through the season we get a phone call that somebody who's working in the racing office, the assistant at um, Rio Dosa in, in Zia is um, ill and may not make the meet. And so I was given the opportunity to go become the assistant racing secretary at Rio Dosa Downs and, uh, and then on to Zia Park. Um, so now I've worked three different tracks in New Mexico. Don Cook, the general manager, still general manager at uh, re, uh, at the, the Downs at Albuquerque, gave me an opportunity to be racing secretary for the first time. Uh, and for someone who's only been an official for a couple of years now, it's it was it was very risky on his part. You know, do I know the game well enough? Do I have enough seasoning to do the job? Or and you know, it's I did okay. I was. I probably wasn't ready to take the job uh, at the time. Um, and I did my best, worked there for uh, two seasons. Uh, at that point, it, it, you know, as I said, I, I wasn't, it wasn't the right time for me to be there. And the favorite phrase in sports, they wanted to make a change. So they wanted to make a change. And I was uh, hired as a placing uh, and teletimer at Colonial Downs. Uh, and the great thing about Colonial Downs that summer, Marty had just taken uh, Sheldon Russell's book. He was working in the racing office in uh, Laurel, Pimlico and uh, Timonium. And he was doing well enough that he decided he wasn't going back. So there was an opening. And after a month at Colonial, my coworkers who also worked in the Maryland circuit recommended me to Georgian Hale and on uh, their their word, I uh, joined their circuit. And so I worked those four tracks for four years. And four years later, I had an opportunity to become racing secretary again at Hastings. Went out to Canada for the first time. After about a year and a half, I had an opportunity to move from Hastings to Woodbine as the uh, racing secretary, uh, which I did for four years. And 
Last year, I was their director of thoroughbred race planning and analysis. Uh, I think I was the only one in the world with that title. I think that uh, may be my favorite title ever. I've had some really cool ones in this game, but that takes the cake. What are you up to now? In the process of the pandemic, uh, decided to come back into the States and Ben Hoffman hired me to work in the race office at Keeneland for April. And I got laid off before my first day of work because of COVID. Oh, <laughs> so that was, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was the interesting part of, uh, part of the year so far. And then from there, uh, went from an opportunity to work at Keeneland, or, I mean, at Churchill once it reopened, um, they seem to like me because I've now been, since the start of racing in Kentucky, have worked at Alice and uh, the, the historic summer meet at Keeneland. And I'm now in Evansville chatting with you because that's where I'm staying um, when I work at Alice. And uh, Tyler, who hired me at the Colonial Downs, is now a steward at Ellis, and he's also the director of racing at uh, Kentucky Downs. So I'll be working for him uh, this summer as well. It's so, amazing how much of all of our careers are based on who we know and where we all wind up. One of the goals for this show is to explain what some of these cool, funky titles we all wind up collecting actually mean. I want to go back to your very first gig at Rotama because you said something that really stuck out. You were both entry clerk and placing judge, and I don't think it gets more literal bookendy than that in the process of how races are run. Can you explain both a bit more? Well, an entry clerk is an order taker from horse people. Um, they're given a catalog or a menu of races that uh, are coming up. And so you have a list of, of races that are available to horse people, uh, trainers and owners to, to plan for. That menu, uh, has um, what are referred to as conditions or restrictions or um, essentially rules of who's allowed to run in that race. There's numerous questions that are asked by the entry clerk to make sure that you have the right horse going into the race. You're confirming the eligibility of the horses. You're collecting information for what's going to be published in the program. And at that point, they have an option to, depending on what kind of race it is, declare what their price tag is if someone's going to buy their horse out of the race, uh, declare what kind of equipment they want to use for safety purposes, uh, whether or not they need blinkers or uh, flipping halters or cheek pieces, uh, bar shoes, you know, what the whole list of things. So you're going through those questions. And then finally, it's who would you like to ride your horse? Uh, at that point, um, all that's collected. And then the the assistant racing secretary or racing secretary will, will process the races decide which they want to use, and then they'll draw the races. And so that's, the entry clerk is the, the input, the interface that the, the trainer owner has going trying to figure out uh, what race they're going to go into. And then the, the other end of the bookend was a placing judge. And depending on the jurisdiction, uh, there's one to three placing judges uh, in the stand, either in the same room or the room adjacent to the racing stewards. And they are there to use the technology as an aid to determine the complete order of finish. It's a role that almost every racing official does along their, their path. It's integral to the racing. 
I remember the first time I watched Placing Judges work. It was 2007 at the Meadowlands, and I thought it was one of those unsung hero jobs on the track. It's just so fundamental to how the game is run. And and something you've been in charge of is a, is a huge part of how horses get to run. That's date preferences. It's something that as a civilian nowadays, I don't really think too much about, but I certainly worried about as an owner and a racing manager and, and when I worked in racing offices. So can you explain what date preferences are and, and how they work? With respect to the dates, I, for four years, was the dates uh, person at uh, Laurel and Pimlico. And currently the, the dates person at Ellis. The the best way to describe the date system is this was a, a method of keeping track of who has run or had an opportunity to run uh, at a meet uh, to allow those who haven't had the opportunity uh, to run. And it replaced a system that I never experienced but was called the star system. And the star system got replaced because it was a system that could be easily gamed. And in, in the date system, it's in the condition book at every track or in the rule book for each jurisdiction. The rules are slightly different everywhere in terms of how you establish your first date and how you, um, you lose dates. But what happens at different tracks, your date gets established by a published criteria. When a horse, um, comes into the meet after that, they will then get a date that corresponds to the rules that are published, but it's usually the next race day. So now you're assigned a date and every time you run, the date changes to the day that you ran. And so now horses will have E dates and R dates. Uh, an E date would be if you entered in a race and you didn't get in. So let's say you, um, you came to the track late, you didn't have a zero date, you entered for the third day of the meet, uh, meet and the race overfilled, you didn't get in, so you get credit for trying to run. You get assigned an E for an entry. Um, if you were in the race and you ran, um, you get an R for a run date. And so now there's just a, there's a published set of rules and there's usually, you know, at least 10 rules for each track of how they progress. Um, most tracks will keep a different date system for um, different surfaces. Uh, I've never experienced it, but I've heard some tracks will have different dates for long and short turf and dirt or turf and main track. This is just sort of an attribute that follows the, each horse's record. And it's really not used except for when a horse has been entered in a popular race whoever's doing the dates of the track will then have all the entries in that race all other things being equal in terms of preferences that may be in the conditions of the race if it's just left to the dates now the the date person sorts them by who should have preference to get into the date by when their last chance when the last time they ran or entered and subject to the rules for scratching along the way and so if you have a race that has 15 horses but you can only run 12 the 12 best will get in and sometimes what will happen is there's a tie and then they will use a a pill bottle uh, and at that point 
the the horses that didn't get in the race their their dates don't change and the horses that get in the race their dates are advanced to uh the race that they're supposed to run in and that's called cycling the dates and increases the fairness of the opportunities of who gets in uh rewards the people who run at your track um, it's so funny you talk about the pill pull i was the claims clerk at the meadowlands a million years ago and I remember my first night working solo, there was a two-way shake for like a 62-5 tag, and I shook like a leaf as these two guys I had long idolized growing up stood there watching me load two numbered marbles into a little leather pouch. I just kept thinking, with all the technology in the world, this is a $62,000 transaction, and it all comes down to my thumb and a marble, because that's normal. Moving away from the old school way we've always done stuff, this is the first crop of two-year-olds, I believe, with digital certificates. How, how much is that switch from paper to electronic? And, and I think we're even in microchip territory, so tattoo to electronic on the horse ID front. H how is that changing what y'all do in the racing office? It's an ongoing change right now. And a quick aside back to the, the, the claims. You mentioned that you were shaking for claims about a decade ago. Things haven't changed to give you an idea. Chris Hartman claimed a horse at, during the Churchill Downs meet. He won a shake uh, for $100,000 and the horse finished third in the Indiana Derby. So a decade later, the same technology is being used. So when it comes now to when we are changing technology, we've, we've upgraded the software in the racing office a couple of years ago and now uh, the, the jockey club is updating a lot of other processes to try to make things easier, including, as you mentioned, um, microchips. So in the past, the horses would have an indelible ink tattooed to their, their lip to identify the, identify the horses to prevent um, the possibility of ringers um, or horses that, you know, the wrong horse in a race. Um, and that has changed to now having a microchip with the information uh, uh, for the registration number injected into the neck of the horse. Um, in most jurisdictions uh, in Alberta, they may do it in the snout, um, but most of the time it's in the, the left side on the neck and there's a, a device that you can hold on and scan the number um, from that. So that has changed. Um, in terms of identification. So um, we're in a, a straddle period where there's still horses with tattoos um, and there's horses with chips and there's some that have both depending on their international travel of what they what they've needed. Um, and what you're referring to on the digital certificates, this is uh, something in North America that is managed through the Jockey Club. It's a set of papers that includes the name of the horse, the registration number, the breeding, uh, description of the markings, um, and then on the back, the racing office keeps track of current ownership and their win record, um, which um, was very useful in a period of time when the internet wasn't around and you could make sure you had horses that were eligible for races running, so things were communicated from track to track. Now that there's a process where there's a a digital certificate which has information on it and I, you know I think of it as um, you know it's it's in the same vein as something like Bitcoin where there's a piece of data 
that has a transaction record on it of who has the money, but this instead is who has the horse and who owns the horse and the identification marking of the horse, all of that is on a piece of digital information. And it is, it is a challenge right now because this was supposed to go into effect at the beginning of the year for horses of the age of two. And because a lot of racetracks have not run this year or had many two-year-old races because of uh, the complications from the COVID pandemic, everybody's still learning the process. Uh, just put it this way, we're all still learning. We've recently been trained on it within the last six to 12 months, depending on what our track you're at. And we've all seen uh, videos emailed around to us as a reminder of how to do it because, well, we didn't do it right away and we're six months past when we thought we'd start doing it. There's there's so many things in the racing that are behind, as we mentioned, uh, still using physical uh, pills for a random number generator, although some some breeds, the standard bred breeds uh, in some jurisdictions will actually use a computer with a random number generator to see close positions. But we still have fax machines. We still have things where we're making photocopies of papers and we're faxing it or we're printing things out and giving people copies uh, or FedExing them from track to track. And I've already had in the last seven days, I've already had at least four phone calls where somebody's on the phone, can you help me find where my physical papers are? The digital certificates will make things easier in the long run. Uh, it will get easier as more two-year-olds run, more of us will learn about it, and it will get easier next year when the three-year-olds and two-year-olds have it. And, you know, 10 years from now, all the older horses will have retired from running and will have nothing but digital certificates and will will have it down pat by then. It's cool that once again, the data guy you were meets the racing official you are now. You've actually always done such cool things online from the charity handicapping tournaments to your newest racing reset trackers. Talk a little bit about why bringing racing data to the virtual world is important for you. Uh, I'll start with a simple one with the, the contests. Uh, a lot of us in racing are, are fans of the sport. A lot of us are like anybody in racing wants to have an opinion and wants to be right. And that's usually done. That's usually done through the paramutual window, but, but racing officials don't have that Avenue. So ha uh, having, having set up contests uh, online where, you know, when I did the charity contest, you actually didn't win anything other than the right to choose the charity that all the money went to. So nobody was making money. It was always going to charity. So, no official would be in a, in a compromised position. And so it gave me an opportunity to have fun and try to do what everybody else is doing. There's also a way to continue to build uh, social connections within the sport because that's the one thing that racing has always been. Um, you go to the track and you stand next to people who enjoy or you sit next to people or stand next to people who enjoy the same sport you do and you build a camaraderie. And as more and more people are taking, uh, taking in the races remotely through off track betting or through, um, ADW wagering, that social connection has been displaced and that need that people feel for connection is replaced online. So 
we each have our preference of whether we want to Instagram or Facebook or do Twitter or, or Reddit or whatever. And Twitter just happens to be the one that matches my personality. I gather things I'm curious about information and, uh, and I don't see it in, in a, um, in one centralized place. And I figured, well, now that I've searched the web with all these searches, I might as well just share what I've learned. And you mentioned, um, the racing reset tweets that I've done. Um, and in anticipation of this call, I, I try to figure out when I started it because I, I have one of these silly habits on Twitter. I, I delete anything that's over the month old because nothing ages well on, on Twitter and I don't want to have wow, a long-term record. Preference system. Oh yeah. It's just like <laughs> that, that one's no longer useful gone. So uh, I couldn't figure out when I did it. I just try to find, you know, files I use in my computer. So I've been doing this since about mid-April. And just at that point, at that point, we're at the beginning. And we didn't even know which tracks were not going to run. And so then I started just keeping a list of who wasn't going to run. And then it sort of evolved into who's starting up, when are they starting up, what races have been canceled, postponed, um, what events have been canceled, postponed. I have it on Twitter under the hashtag of racing reset. And I and now I'm only doing it twice a week because it's not changing that much. It's really not the story that we all want to tell of we may or may not be running, but it's the answer that everybody wants to see. And so it's, um, so it's, you know, there's no, financial incentive for any publication to do it. Um, I'm a nerd like you, and I also love chasing the numbers, and I think it's really important. You know, I, I spent a large portion of the first part of the bulk of quarantine reminding every sports reporter tweeting, sports are gone, what are we gonna do? That racing is still up. Because I think short of a few rodeo events, horse racing is the only sport that did not stop. NASCAR, golf, tennis, those guys all took like a month off at least. But racing for the most part, especially early between Oaklawn and Gulfstream and, and even Naira and SoCal tried, Tampa was there. You know, it was really interesting to see that, that racing, which was America's original favorite pastime, we hung on. I'm sorry to the Queen's Plate because I know it's got a longer number at the end, but there is a reason the Derby is, as the late great John Asher would say, the oldest continuously run sporting event in North America. And, and, you, and you have to give love to Pem uh the Maryland Jockey Club because they are the oldest sports organization in North America. And as a former employee, you got to remember that, that uh, George Washington was a member of the Maryland Jockey Club at one time. He was? Yes. So, but the, the biggest thing with us as an industry running, we've been given an opportunity and it comes with responsibilities. Uh, this, this opportunity uh, and is unique because the amount of effort that it goes into keeping a horse healthy and fit is the same number of people, the, the farrier, the, uh, the person delivering the feed, the person, the grooms, uh, everybody who takes care of the horse is going to be the same, whether they're racing or not. The issue now and what we're seeing in other sports as more sports ramp back up, there's a risk uh, for public health from the human's perspective. Of, of spreading the disease. And so we have a fiduciary responsibility to the sport to make sure we don't blow this. We, we're given an opportunity, whether it's only three months and it disappears, now that the women's and men's uh, soccer leagues are back up and running, NASCAR's running, 
um, basketball, hockey, and baseball are around the corner. We have to we have to make sure that we don't we don't lose what we've gained in these these three months. And we realize that we we've been given a special opportunity that's allowed the sport to run and entertain America while other things aren't on. Television shows have have not have new um, new episodes because the the studios have been closed for so long. There's not sports out there. People are tired of whatever they had in their Netflix and uh, Hulu queues. We've we've had this opportunity to entertain, and uh, we just need to make sure that um, we appreciate it. And I know it's frustrating that you can't have all the fans at the track. It's frustrating you can't have all the owners at the track. You know, if we we want to be able to keep going forward. We don't want to have more tracks pause or we've had numerous tracks just cancel, say they're not even going to run this year. And there have been tracks such as uh, Arlington and Prescott that haven't even started yet. So it's, we just have to, we're, we've been stewards of the, the sport. Now we're stewards of American entertainment and we just have to uh, do the right thing so that we can keep presenting that form of entertainment for everybody. Okay, I absolutely love how you phrased that. You kind of answered my last question, but I will attempt to ask it in a non-COVID context, if that's even possible in today's new normal. We've talked a bit about where we see the sport now, and once again, I, I love how you said we're all stewards of the industry. Where do you see this crazy game we work in that we've dedicated our lives to? Where do you see horse racing going in the future? In your ideal world, where would we be headed? Fortune telling is tough. Um, this is the, the biggest thing right now is the impact on, on uh, how Americans spend disposable income after uh, perhaps uh, was a, a, a uh, repealed from the Supreme Court a handful of years ago, as the number of jurisdictions are rolling out um, sports betting. And as that is changing, and um, this will change where people want to spend their disposable income, it's, there's so many questions left to be answered because there's only, only a handful of jurisdictions where there's uh, both, um, land-based and internet-based casino sports betting in the U.S. And in the sense of, you know, that's a competition of, of how do we, how do we enter, uh, educate people of how to play our sport versus how to bet on other sports. It's, you know, it all, you know, it's how we all collectively address it. Where we should be going is, um, it's tough because you know, that question assumes a, a collective that we have one one person in the back of the the skull yelling commands of 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 you know what to do as a group. Um, we have no coxswain in horse racing. We have 37 independent jurisdictions in the United States all going in different directions. The model rules aren't the model rules. They're different everywhere. Everybody's goals are different everywhere. We're on different networks everywhere. So to do what we need to do, we need to actually work as a collective. And the problem is everybody's got different motivations. The breeders have different motivations. The owners have different motivations. The, the associations have different motivations. The state regulatory bodies have different motivations. So 
tackling that is going to be hard. But if the best thing that we can do is to work in concert to make our product better to compete against the the new competition from sports betting that hasn't really evolved. You know, I, I can just keep it simple. What we need to do is collectively improve the product so that we can be competitive. Um, the devil's in the details and they're going to be hard. What a perfectly reasoned and smart and logical take on that, which is not necessarily what racing does sometimes. So uh, I, I really, really love that. Remind folks where they can find you on the socials. I think I've been on Twitter for, I don't know, 10, 11 years. I'm not sure, but I've been um, at Ovals. Simple geometric shape that most racetracks in North America have. So you may not like my feed. I'm, I'm not necessarily a good follower or a bad follower unless you, unless you uh, like or dislike um, my personality and what draws me to racing. As we get into the gallop out portion of today's show, I want to thank Stu Slagle for explaining some parts of the racing office routine that even I didn't know about. And I want to thank you for listening along with me. Much appreciation, as always, to my tiny production crew and the good folks at the Believe Network for the chance to share this show with y'all. Remember to like and comment and subscribe and share and whatever else you can do from whichever platform you're listening on. If there's something about horse racing you want to know more about, drop us a note at ask at beyondtheracetrack.com or any of our socials, all of which can be found on beyondtheracetrack.com. I am Molly Jo Rosen, and I will see you back here next week as we once again go Beyond the Racetrack. This is going to be a wild ride. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.